Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I appreciate that prayer, you know, particularly the mention of we can't make preachers. We're not a preacher manufacturing facility here. I mean, you know what? Sometimes I think, well, it'd be a lot easier if we were. And we just crank them through the assembly line and they'd come out the end. And, but it's not like building a Model T, right? You don't just find the pieces and put them together and crank them out. This shows our dependence on the Lord. And if God doesn't raise up men to serve in His kingdom, you're not going to have any elders. You're not going to have any deacons. You're not going to have any faithful men in the church who serve and bring their families in. We are utterly dependent upon God to supply our needs in this regard. And as we enter into this Thanksgiving week, I want you all to take a look around you today and start recognizing that those people sitting next to you, those people who have a heart to want to come serve God, that's something you can be thankful for this week. You've got a church family that is a living miracle around you of God's grace. God has touched those people's hearts such that they would not want to do anything other than be with God's people and hear the Word of God proclaimed on a Sunday morning. What a blessing that is, and I ask that we be very thankful for that, even as we continue as a church to pray that God would raise up men. I trust those of you who have been seeing the uh, announcements on Facebook to encourage us to pray in that regard, and those of you who don't, I've been sending them out in text just as a reminder. If anyone is not getting that or would like to, let me know and I'll make sure you're on that. But let's continue to pray for that with the earnest expectation that God will grant our request in due time. As we head back into the uh, second epistle to the young minister Timothy written by the Apostle Paul, I have a hope that I might actually finish this chapter. I'm in the final chapter here and we've spent the last several months kind of going through First and Second Timothy. And um, I didn't get as far last Sunday on preaching on this chapter as I'd intended to. So I'm going to pick up in about verse 4, but I'll start by reading uh, 2 and 3 as well. He said, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. I pointed out Paul, unlike so many today, Paul said doctrine is important. That's what you're supposed to be preaching. If you're kind of out there saying doctrine is not that important, you're just completely out of the way. You are disorderly. We were talking about order before, right? That's disorderly. It's inconsistent with the teaching of the New Testament and with the apostles. So he thought it was important and he thought it was something you've got to, you've got to focus on, preaching the Word. It's why we as a church have committed to this idea of we're going to open the Bible you ought to bring your Bible and look at what we're preaching. We're not going to take some little snippet and then talk for 20 or 30 minutes about modern philosophy and, and tell you something about our political views and, and what modern psychology is learning and all these sorts of things. That's not what we're doing. We are looking at the Scriptures. And in many respects, the things said in Scripture, while there are some things hard to be understood, there's a lot of things that are not that hard to be understood. They're pretty plainly stated. And if you will acquaint yourself with the Word of God, and if we will preach the Word of God over the course of 52 lessons a year, over the course of many years of your life, you're going to become much more acquainted with the Word of God. So I encourage you, as we preach the Word here, and as we open the Bible and dedicate ourselves to seeing what it says, open your Bible and put your eyes on it. Some of you don't read. Some of you have told me that. You don't read the Bible very much. I get it. 
I'm not endorsing that practice, by the way, but I'm recognizing it. And if that's the case, at a minimum, you got 52 opportunities a year to put your eyes on the Word of God if you just come to church. So I encourage you to do that. So he says, preach the Word in season and out of season. That means kind of at all times is the way I'm seeing it. Something's either in season or it's out of season. If you're in season and out of season, you kind of cover it at all times, have you not? So the opportunities to preach the Word are beyond just what happens on Sunday morning here in Donaldson, Arkansas. Your life ought to be a declaration of the Word and the fact that you believe God's Word is true. And it says there's a reason for this. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And I said last Sunday, we're living in those times. I'm very comfortable saying that this is the world you see around you. You've got the broader world of what I would call paganism or the world that just rejects Christianity outright. Well, those people clearly won't endure sound teaching. They don't want anything to do with anything that resembles the teaching of Christ. They just don't want anything to do with the Christian religion. They're unbelievers, members of false religions that reject Christ and whatnot. You know that's out there. But this is, I think, more specifically talking about within the domain of professing Christianity, there's a departure and people don't really want, they want the name of Christ, but they don't really want what Christ taught, right? It's Christianity in name only, right? So I think this is very evident around us and there's been departures within those who are professing Christ in many ways. And we're living in those times. So I'm just trying to make you aware of that. Don't be shocked when you see Christian people, people with a profession of Christianity who are out there promoting all sorts of unstable and unbiblical ideas. While that might be unsettling, you might say, I don't like looking at that. You know, it creates this conflict and shouldn't Christian people be better than that or shouldn't they believe the right way or whatever. At least look at it this way. This is an affirmation that what Paul told you right here is true. He's telling you the truth about the environment you're going to be in. So when you see Christian people promoting ideas that are unscriptural, you can at least say, well, that's actually in the Scripture. (laughs) Paul told us it's going to be that way. So don't be surprised by it, even if you're troubled by it. See that? I'm going to pick up in verse 4 here, and I'm going to call this sermon here, there's really three things I'm trying to cover here. It's fables, fights, and friends. What's that, brother? Fables, fights, and friends. And we'll start with the fables, which have been mentioned here. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. There are going to be untruths that they're going to promote in lieu of what is taught in the Bible. It's a falsehood that does not conform to Scripture. That's what is intended here by a fable. He's not talking about, you know, oh, we're going to talk about the little old woman who lived in a shoe. Right? It's not that kind of fable. It's not a fairy tale or something like that. It's really a false teaching is what he has in mind. Something that doesn't conform to Scripture. Something that is not good doctrine, which he thought was very important and he thought we should declare. Now, these things are very much all around us today, these fables. And I'm going to quickly just give you a few of them, just so you can consider them. We are Baptists And that means we think something about the matter of baptism, right? I mean, we would not have adopted that name. We would not have been called Baptists if we didn't think that something about baptism was pretty important. And you'll find that there are many fables taught about the notion of baptism in Christianity today. And there's a lot of different aspects of this, but I'll give you two to consider. 
There's the mode of baptism, which is how do you actually go about this business of baptizing. And there's the purpose of baptism. So there's a lot of fables just around those two topics. There's other aspects of it too, like who are the proper candidates for baptism? Who are the proper people who should be involved in administering the ordinance of baptism? There's other dimensions of it too, and there's problems all across the professing Christian world with respect to these things. But the Bible teaches the following. Let's look at Acts chapter 8. And this is in reference to the mode of baptism. Chapter 8, and let's see, where am I here? Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This is of clear indication that this is a baptism by immersion. If all we're going to do is sprinkle a little water on your head, all we need is a little cup or something, we're going to pour that on you. You'll find that in the Bible, people are going down into the water to receive baptism. It's baptism by immersion. The term baptism really means immersion. And interesting fact, that term is actually not an English word. There's a Greek word, baptizo, and when they translated the Bible, they said, well, let's don't translate that immersion. Let's just bring that Greek word into English and we'll anglicize it, so to speak. We'll kind of turn it into, uh, it's transliteration, I believe is the proper term. We'll just kind of rearrange the letters in such a way that it looks more like an English word and it carries the previous uh, Greek meaning with it. But baptism is a transliterated word. But it literally just means going down into the water. Now, if you go back to church history, you will find even among those who practice a different form of baptism, even those are willing to admit in most instances that the historical or primitive practice of the church was immersion, irrespective of the fact that they are now sprinkling people or pouring, right? So they'll recognize it. If you read John Calvin's works, you'll find him admitting this. He's like, yeah, well, in the early church, they immersed people. And so they're kind of basing this on we recognize that's what they did, but we believe we have sufficient liberty to modify that. That's kind of what they believe. They're not trying to deny that that's the way the early church did it, right? They're just saying, we think we are at liberty to change that. Now, we disagree with that, right? I mean, we think that the early church, the primitive practice of the church is the practice that we ought to have going forward. And that's what we ought to do. So that's kind of where we're coming from, you know, <laughs> The, the funny thing about that, I can see how in our time, we live in times of ease. We haven't had a whole lot of very difficult religious struggles in our time. We don't have people that are being threatened with death and, and, you know, if you profess faith in Christ, we're going to put you to death and these sorts of things. These very severe things that have happened over the course of Christianity. And so we may be inclined to think, well, what does this mode of baptism thing really matter? Does it really matter that much? I have some sympathy for that sentiment because I understand it, but I'm just saying we live in soft times. There are Baptist forefathers, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ from hundreds of years ago, that were literally put to death over this issue because they had other churches coming in and saying, look, if you don't do it our way, we're going to put you to death. It's a very serious matter. I mean, it gets into the matter of religious liberty, and are you going to be forced to do something that is not truly what you believe because of some tyrannical authority in the domain of religion? Or are you going to be allowed to express your religion as you believe the Bible actually teaches it? 
So while we may think it's trivial in our time, it has not been a trivial matter. You look around this room, you would be shocked and appalled if you thought, well, this brother over here, they took him out and killed him because he had been baptized by immersion and wouldn't accept the sprinkling of some other church. You would just be absolutely appalled that that had taken place. Well, what I'm telling you today is that it has taken place. It just hasn't taken place in our time. It's been a major issue, and it goes right into the heart of the matter of are you going to follow the primitive practice of the church as exemplified in the Bible, or are you going to adopt a modification which is a fable and just says we can do it however we want to? You say, well, it's just that one thing. Yeah, but then it happens across a thousand different doctrines, right? One tiny departure right here. Then we step over here and we have another tiny departure. And then we have another one. And before too long, you're not just a church that's stumbling with a few errors that need correction. You are completely out of the way teaching an entirely other doctrine about things. So it's an important matter. The other side of it is, uh, and I won't belabor this, I'll give you a, a homework assignment. 1 Peter 3.21 talks about the matter of baptism saving you. Now, baptism is a work of righteousness that we do. You actually have to submit to baptism, right? You have to see the church. You have to hear the declaration of the gospel. You have to say, I believe that Jesus Christ rose out of the grave and that He is my hope and my salvation. That is what baptism is. It is a declaration of those truths. And you have to do it willingly. No one has ever been levitated by the power of God against their will up through these curtains and then dunked into the water and brought back out against their will and without any involvement of their personal will. You have to willingly make that decision and do it. It is therefore, since it is an act of obedience to God, it is an act of righteousness. Now what does that tell you? If baptism is an act of righteousness that involves your will, can it be a requirement of your eternal salvation if Jesus Christ did all of it. It cannot be. You see what I'm saying? We're saved not by works of righteousness which we have done. You see that? So it cannot be for the purpose of your eternal salvation, but that is not to say that it doesn't have some saving capacity in your life. If you're out there laboring under the uh, belief that, well, you know, I, I believe these things and I haven't been baptized and maybe, and I think I need to be. You can be saved from that today. If you'll step forward in the waters of baptism, you'll be saved from that convicting thought because you'll enter into the obedience that Christ would have you enter into and you will, you'll be saved from that. You won't be troubled by that anymore. You'll be troubled by a whole host of other things, but you won't be troubled by that. It'll save you in that respect. So that's baptism. Uh, and that's one area where you hear a lot of fables taught. How about the worship of saints? Look at 1 Timothy 2.5. We looked at this a while back. It's a really important principle in the Bible that uh, corrects a lot of errors, uh, particularly those where people start to stray off into pagan ideas, right? 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Good doctrine is that you have one mediator between you and God in the matter of your salvation, and that mediator is Jesus Christ. That is why we say that, for example, 
regeneration is immediate. That's why we talk of immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. Because Brother Dan, Brother Sonny, and no old Baptist elder or anybody else was in any way a mediator in the matter of your eternal salvation. See that? God, Jesus Christ, and you. It's direct through God to you. He's the one mediator, right? But that's a two-way street. That's how it goes down from God to you. But if you've got things you want to get to God, you're going straight to the Lord through Jesus Christ. That's what Christ accomplished. You see that? You've got this ability to pray directly to God. You don't need Mary as your intercessor. She couldn't intercede for you anyway. She just, she's, she's a sinner just like you. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, you know, the, the, the notion on this is like, well, we're not actually praying to Mary or to some saint. We're talking to them. And the, the thought is, well, they're up in heaven and they can go over and talk to Jesus. Right? That's how they kind of get around the idea of saying, we're not worshiping Mary or the saints. We're just talking to them like the same way I would go to a brother in my church and say, would you pray for me? Right? Well, that sounds kind of convincing, but the problem is this. You've got a direct hotline to God through Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to, you remember that old 60s Batman TV show? In Commissioner Gordon's office, there was a red phone. It was, I think they call it the bat phone. It was under kind of a glass cake dish kind of thing. And when they needed to get the Batman, they would pick up that phone and it went straight to Batman. Right? It's not like on Andy Griffith where they're like, Sue, can you get me Batman on the phone? There's no intercessor. You see what I'm saying? They're not having to invoke somebody else to get to the person they wanted to talk to. They had a direct line. I bet you didn't think you were going to hear a Batman metaphor on a Sunday morning. But I think it illustrates the idea. If you had a direct line to God, why then would you be trying to go over here and have someone else go and connect for you? Right? You might want to have brothers and sisters in Christ pray along with you on some matter. That's fine. They got a direct line to Jesus Christ as well. But you don't have to ask some departed saint to intercede for you between you and Jesus Christ. You have a direct line because there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Very, very important. Look over here, I'll, I'll kind of confirm this idea a little bit further. I don't think this is controversial, but I'm trying to give you examples of fables that are taught in the Christian marketplace today. If you look at Acts chapter 10, we know this a lot, the house of Cornelius. You know the story, but Peter shows up at Cornelius' house, and in verse 25 it says, And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And by the way, some claim this was the Pope of the Christian faith, and the popes clearly receive this sort of worship. This is evidently, this goes on all the time. It is not forbidden. But we find uh, Peter, verse 26, But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. Don't worship me. I'm just a man like you. You see how that applies? You don't have to go to Peter. You know what? I'm the pastor of this church. You don't have to come to me to try to get to God. If you're born of His Spirit, you've got a direct line to God. You see that? And uh, there's no point in worshiping men. And Peter, who was 
you know, a very great man. I think very great in the Christian faith. He wrote aspects of Scripture. We know a lot about his life. He did a, many wonderful things. History records that he was a martyr for the faith and those sorts of things. Many things were laudable about Peter, but he is not your intercessor before the throne of divine justice. Jesus Christ is that, and you've got a direct line through him. And Peter wouldn't have any part of it. Peter didn't say, well, that's, that's okay. Of course, you realize I, I, you, can, you can linger down there at my feet a little longer because, you know, I did know personally the Lord Jesus Christ, and I spent a lot of time in His presence. So let me know what you want me to whisper in the Lord's ear, and I'll go up, I'll, I'll set it before Him. That's not what was going on here. Peter's like, look, it's poor, weak, and worthless, right? Peter recognized this principle. I'm just as poor, weak, and worthless as you are, but I have a rich, almighty friend, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's another thing that's out there. Another idea that crops up, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is this idea of purgatory. Well, so first of all, we believe that Jesus Christ did a finished work. That means if He died on the cross for your sins, those sins are gone. They are not under consideration anymore from the matter of justice. They were judged in Christ. They were punished in Christ. And they're gone, right? So that belief alone, the absolute efficacy of Christ's atonement at Calvary, that concept alone eliminates even the possibility that there might be something after death that one of God's people might need to be purged from, right? The very notion of that implies that Jesus didn't finish it. Now, there was some other stuff you had to work on, right? So... That doctrine is obnoxious to Christian people, but it, it often arises, uh, or for Bible-believing people, it arises out of texts like 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 12. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. This is talking about the works you do in your life as part of your Christian walk, and it refers to them as gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Now, if you think about that list of things, you've got things that are rare and highly prized and highly valuable, right? That would be the uh, gold and silver and maybe precious stones. Those are things that everyone in our kind of in the carnal world around us, we recognize those are precious items that are of great value, right? You would never think that those were worthless things, right? And that's what he's talking about. But then he also mentions wood. Well, wood has some capacity and some capability to it. If you're trying to build something, this building is held together with wood. It's held up by beams of wood and whatnot. So it has some utility, but it doesn't have the same honor, if you will, or the same unique and rare value as gold and silver. So it has kind of a lesser thing here. And then you've got kind of uh, hay and stubble, which is kind of like worthless stuff that's just not much, not a whole lot of use for if you're trying to build a building, for example. This is a continuum of rare, valuable things that men might offer up in their service to God versus common and kind of not that valuable or not worthwhile, not profitable things. And what you do in your Christian walk, all the things you do are going to fall somewhere along that continuum. Right? And that means there's a mixture of what you're offering up. You may spend time doing things in the kingdom of God that are really not of any value and unprofitable. And you may do some things that are very, very valuable. 
So he says this, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare. And I think this is talking about judgment because it shall be revealed by fire for the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. This is not talking about hell fire for some people going to hell, some people going to hell. This is talking about we're now looking at how you spent your life. Think of it this way. What are all the different things you've done in your life? And you, if you were to lay them out there and God's going to look at them and say, that was a total waste of time. That was worthless. And here's something you did over here that was really valuable to a brother or sister. Maybe here, over here is a word of encouragement that you gave to someone. Maybe you came alongside them and you did something that they needed. And that was like gold to that person. I think God, in the final mix, when we're seeing these things, we're going to look back over our lives and realize, well, I think one of the things we're going to realize is we had a fair amount of wood, hay, and stubble. I set that before you. There's a lot of things we do and we spend time on in our lives that are not particularly profitable, but they may take up more time than we are willing to admit. So that's something to consider. But he makes this point here. She'll be revealed by fire. In other words, we're going to know whether these things were valuable or not. And uh, the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he have built Thereupon he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. In other words, ultimately, where you're going to spend eternity is not going to be based on how much wood, hay, stubble, silver, or gold you had piled up. And did you have enough silver and gold to get you into heaven? No, it's not based on that. He's talking about there's going to be an assessment of how profitable your life was in the kingdom of God. And it's going to be manifest. We're going to know that. I think you're going to see, you know, in that day you're going to see uh, the Old Testament prophet Daniel is going to be like, that, that man was packing up gold, spiritual gold here on earth. He's obeying God, very profitable unto God's people. And then you're going to see Lot, and he's going to be in glory, right? He was a just man. However, the produce of his life was largely unprofitable. Now, we don't have a comprehensive telling of his life. Maybe he did some good and golden things. But what we do know about it, it's pretty much hay and stubble. It's a lot of pursuit of things of this world that visited distress and misery into his family and into his circumstances. But the implication that's made in the world of fables is that, oh, see here, this is purgatory. So people who had all these problems weren't quite ready to go to heaven because apparently Jesus didn't really get the job done. They got all these issues, so we're going to have to put them in this intervening state where things have to get burned away, where they purge their sins through their own suffering and through a period of time here before they're allowed to go to heaven. Well, that's a blasphemous doctrine. That gives men some credit in their eternal salvation, right? It's kind of like Jesus paid the tab, but I left the tip, right? I had to throw in a little bit at the end of the meal to get the thing completely paid for. That's not how it works. Jesus paid it all. We sing that and we mean it. So there cannot even be any such thing as purgatory. And you have to have a very fanciful take on texts like this to end up with that kind of a doctrine anyway. But that's another example of fable. There are others. I won't belabor them. Probably the main fable that's out there is just in the realm of salvation. Do you have to do stuff or did Christ do it all? That's really the main fable. And that one has a thousand different varieties out there. So be aware of that. Those fables exist. They're out there. 
and uh, you'll encounter them. That's why we preach the Word, because we want to know what the truth is about these matters. So people be turned unto these fables. In verse 5, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Paul refers to this as a fight. You know, it's a battle. There's a spiritual warfare going on in this world. And if you kind of wander into this, not thinking you're going into a battle, it's probably not going to go well for you. You know, if you're in a situation where someone is approaching you with hostility, I can remember in college one time, it was very late, I was trying to pump gas, and some fella from across the parking lot started coming my way. And I don't know if any of you have had an experience like this. You look at this person, you say, this guy's got nothing good in store for me. The way he's walking, the intent, the way he's looking at me, this is not good. I got out of there, right? I could see where this was going. If you approach a situation like that and you're just like, I think everybody's fine, nobody's hostile, no one would ever possibly do anything bad to me. You're not putting up your hands in some measure of defense. You're not trying to anticipate some hostility coming your way. It could go very, very badly for you, right? I try to tell my son and and my kids that, you know, when you're running around, particularly as, as it gets to nighttime and later and later at night, if you need gas, but you can get home, you probably just go and get home because you're exposing yourself to the likelihood that some hostility is going to befall you in this situation. And it's true. We're aware of those things. I've experienced them personally, and I try to make others aware of them as well. Well, the Bible's trying to do the same thing to you. It's trying to tell you that the Christian walk, you're surrounded by hostile enemies on all sides, and it's going to be a fight. There's not going to be like, oh, we'll just all go along to get along. It's not always going to work that way. There's going to be fights that come into play, and you need to be prepared for them. You need to know and defend yourself and be ready for them and be expecting that this could come about. And Paul had his share of it, right? I mean, we're blessed to not have had the level of persecution that Paul experienced. And there are a couple of occasions where they took Paul and beat him so severely that they thought he was dead. That means he's not moving. He's a bloody heap on the ground. And they're like, well, he's dead. Well, let's drag him outside the city. He's just going to stink in here if we leave him. So they drag him out and leave him there. About 20 minutes later, Paul's just dusted himself off and I mean, Paul knew something about the hostility of the world. We should, one of the things you can be thankful for this week is that we have not faced that level of hostility, but it doesn't mean that it's not a possibility. And yet we still have fights. We still are in a conflict with a wicked world. And he tells us about that. He speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So let's turn over there. Maybe we'll close here. Probably not going to get to uh, all three of my points today. This is what he's talking about. I gave you an example that was, you know, someone approaching you late at night at a gas station and they're going to try to mug you or something like that. That's a physical example just to kind of get your mind thinking about it. But Paul makes this point that though the warfare we experience might end up taking that form, 
uh, it actually comes from a different source. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The battles that you're facing as a Christian are primarily spiritual battles, right? That's where their source is. It's in the spiritual conflict that exists in the world. It may manifest itself as physical hostility towards you at some point, but it doesn't always manifest itself in that way. It's a spiritual warfare. By the way, it says uh, that we have weapons of our warfare. I believe prayer is one of those weapons. It's one that we probably don't use as much as we ought to. I know we often refer to the fact that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, and that's a weapon of warfare, is it not? So knowing the truths of the Word of God will help you in these battles, but there is an element in which prayer is essential to you fighting these battles. And I encourage you to set your cares before the Lord. It says that these weapons are casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's an extremely convicting verse. Um, For the most part... It's been my observation that Christian people, at least on Sunday morning, they try to do a really good job of reining in their external behavior when they're at church on Sunday morning. And they have pretty good reign on that. And if you've gone to church for many years, I call it putting your church pants on. You're not you're going to try not to give any evident offense to anybody in the assembly. And, you know, I get that. We should be that way. However, this is talking about bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So even if you're well practiced in the idea of, you know, I, I don't overtly go out and do things that people would look at and say, well, that's a horrible thing for a Christian to do. Paul knows something about his own mind here and is willing to admit that. Your mind can go into all kinds of places and think all kinds of carnal thoughts and hostilities towards other people and unforgiveness towards other people and thinking violence and anger and all these sorts of things. All those things are in play. And it's interesting to me that Paul talks about the mind here in this matter of spiritual warfare. I think it's, I'll say this, I think he mentions it because it's a primary battleground. And because it's something that others don't see, we may at times feel at liberty to entertain thoughts that we shouldn't entertain simply because no one else can see that they're going on between our ears. They say you can judge someone's character by seeing what they do when no one's looking, right? Well, no one's looking at the thoughts in your mind. That's perhaps one of the most private places that any of us have is this idea of the thoughts in our heads. Do you think of reining in your thought life? Maybe you have anger or hostility towards someone. Maybe you have carnal thoughts that are inappropriate. Maybe you harbor resentment and these sorts of things. Do you allow that to just fester in your mind? And do you feel as though you're justified in ruminating on it? Or do you think, you know what, I can't allow myself to think about this. I can't allow myself to dwell on this matter. I need to move on. Well, that's a very convicting thought for me. I suspect it's convicting for everyone because the mind is such a private place that it seems inevitable to me that it would be ripe for opportunities to grow some unprofitable and sinful thoughts that we ruminate on, right? So 
keep that in mind as you go through the coming days. And the thought world is one of those places where you'll have this battle. Well, let me try to wrap this up. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love His appearing. Now, many are going to take this idea and say, everybody's got different levels of rewards in heaven. And, uh, you know, Paul's going to have a, a mansion up there right next door to Jesus. And, uh, you know, I just want a little shotgun shack over here in a pasture. You know, not as close to God because I wasn't as good. And somebody over there, they might be, maybe there's homeless people in heaven. They're in heaven, but they don't actually have a place to stay because they weren't worth a hoot while they were here on earth. There's literally, I mean, that teaching is out there in the domain of Christianity. And people are kind of, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in a mansion next door to Jesus. I'm going to be in that gated neighborhood up there in glory, right? So that teaching exists out there, but it's completely destroyed when we understand what our reward is. Our reward is Christ, and we are joint heirs with Christ. Amen. You've got it all. So even if you start saying, well, you know, isn't Paul going to get something special? I mean, he wrote so much of the New Testament, and he performed these miracles, and he had this amazing life. Isn't he going to get something special on top of that? Well, he's got everything. So how do you add something to everything? Right? He's got what Christ has. He's a joint heir with Jesus Christ. The very notion that you think he's going to get something more is an assault on the idea that he's a joint heir with Christ and he's already got everything. And that's the same for all of us. All of us. We're all sons and daughters of the Lord. We're all joint heirs in his kingdom. And that's how it's going to be. That's the reward that we're all going to get. We're going to get the reward that we're all joint heirs with Christ. Well, I'm going to stop there and uh, I'll just quickly introduce this. I'll give you another homework assignment. So you got two this week. So you have, that means nobody's going to show up to church next Sunday if I'm checking homework. The third point I wanted to make in this sermon, but we'll maybe get to next week. I said fables, fights, and friends. It's really friends, and you might think of that as family as well, because it's a church family. The remainder of this letter, which I would encourage you to read, we'll just read the whole chapter, right? Uh, but it's really verses 9 through 22. What you're going to find is that Paul mentions like 17 people by name. He knew these people, right? He wasn't like Facebook friends with them. These are people he had been in the physical presence of, had conversations with, broke bread with, knew what was going on in their lives, had enfranchisement in seeing their spiritual development and growth. He was there. He knew them. He could pick them out in a police lineup if he had to. He knew these people. And that was really important to him. He spent half a chapter here just going through this list of people. And by the way, not all of it is good. If these are his friends and family, you're going to find he's got trouble in his family. You got trouble in your family? You think it's all going to be hunky-dory in the kingdom of God just because we're all Christian people putting our church pants on and everything, that we're acting nice on Sunday morning, that we're not going to have some issues where we don't get along sometimes or we don't agree and there's going to be some trouble. Somebody's going to jump the rails and somebody else is going to come alongside. All these things happen. They happen in your family. They happen with your friends. They happen in the kingdom of God. It's all part of it. But you know what? 
We all need to be together as a family. We need to help one another and come together. And I would encourage you to read verses 9 through 22 and just look at this list of people that he mentions. And some of them he has good things to say about. And some of them he's like, well, this guy basically stabbed me in the back. Well, Christianity is a full contact sport. It's not all going to be hunky-dory. We ain't in glory yet, okay? An institution composed entirely of sinners is going to have some trouble in it, is it not? So we can expect that, but we all love the Lord, and we can all help one another in that. And by the way, as you work through issues like that in your faith, it actually makes you stronger with one another. It's really true. One of the reasons I'm so close to my natural family is because we've been through everything that we've done as a family together. We've been through those things together. It hasn't always been rosy. We've disagreed with one another and things like that. But, you know, there's a good place on the back side of that where, you know, you know, we didn't get along, but we love each other. And we're still trucking on down the road. Makes that love stronger in many respects. And it works exactly the same way in your church family. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons, preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.